Hello, and welcome to another episode of Novel Not New, a True End podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Uncle, and uh, joining me is Olivia Joseph. Hi, that's me. And Six Detmar is currently... Oh, well, V decided to step out just um, due to some scheduling stuff. Um, it, it's no big deal, but yeah. It, it's just going to be the two of us this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, before we get into this this month's game... Um, have there been any big, have there been any visual novels that you've been playing on the side? Um, it's mostly Umineko. I don't know if I mentioned Umineko the last time we recorded. Um, it's been uh, it's been a while, uh, but I'm doing a Umineko book club basically on the Abnormal Mapping server where we do a chapter a month, and so this is our second month, and we're on chapter two, and I'm not super far into it. Um, but it's continuing to be very engaging. Um, I found a, I found a very great quote from the author recently where he said he treats writing like a roller coaster, as in, um, before what he calls the especially cruel scenes, he has to write scenes that are fun to buoy the audience before they get into just the, uh, the, the rougher stuff. And I would say that's very accurate. Um. Umineko has a, it's very, it's not shy of having like just a, a fluffy or like fun scene um, of just characters hanging out and talking and then just to slam right into what it's, you know, what it's talking about. Uh, it's heavier themes, stuff like abuse and like um, sort of like family uh, pain and tragedy, uh, a lot about capitalism, mental illness, things like that. Um, and so it makes for a very good, but also very draining read at times. Yeah, it, it's a really fascinating visual novel, um, but it's also, like, one of the longest visual novels ever. I watched a video on it recently where they were trying to ballpark exactly how long it was, and they met, I think the estimate was around reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy a few times, and maybe sneaking The Hobbit in there as well. <laughs> That would not surprise me. I think my playtime right now, just for like, I know my playtime for the be- for the first episode was 12 hours. And then my current playtime where I'm just a little bit into the second one is like an additional two. So um, it's going to be a long one. There's a reason I said one chapter a month for however many months it takes. Like, I really think this is a, this is a visual novel that's so long that you really should pace yourself or it will just take over your life. Totally. And it's easy to forget that um, even though it's presented as two separate, uh, it's presented as two separate halves with four chapters in each. uh, The process of releasing those chapters was initially a standalone thing that took that, which had months and months apart um, Mm -hmm. from their release date. So it's a single chapter isn't really something you can blitz through. It's like a single chapter. I'd say if you're taking your time with it would take around 15 to 20 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, very early on when I like first was considering reading it, um, somebody who I was listening to talk about it, compared it to like a series of novels. Um, and that's actually been very helpful to me to think about it as like, a few different novels in the series and to treat it like, okay, 
I finished chapter one. That's as if I finished the first novel of this series, so I'm going to give it time to percolate, to think about it, and then go into the second one, because there were several months apart. Like, the first two chapters, I think, were released in 2007, and then the next one is 2008. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, it's, it's also helps that uh, each... Well, the way that the story frames it is that each chapter is like its own separate game, both in terms of the way it was released and also just that that's the term the game uses for what's going on between Beatrice and Battler. So mm-hmm. the, the, the pieces are cleared out and everything like that, and it sort of resets after each chapter. Yeah. The end of chapter one was very much like, um, you know, even though... Even though in the larger story, it was uh, sort of the first act, it ended basically at the first chapter. It was like, okay, this this part of the story is over, and now we're sort of reviewing events, sort of redoing events, and they're going to do a different spin on it. But there is a sort of like, from what I gather, there is a sort of two-day period on this island that all the characters are on that is going to end and repeat and start over again over the course of the games. For sure. At this time, it is. Uh, this time, you get a bunch of different scenes, including Beatrice stuffing her face with candy on a beach. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? Chapter one's not. Chapter two's not so bad. They really like. Chapter one was so, like, it seemed to take like almost pleasure in refusing to show you Beatrice. It's just everyone talks about Beatrice. Everyone talks about their opinions on Beatrice, but you never see her. You don't even see her in the main chapter one. Like, she appears, but you don't see a sprite for her. Um, She's only alluded to. And then it's like in the bonus scenes of the end of chapter one that you actually see Beatrice in full. And then this one is like, no, Beatrice is going to hang out. She's going to talk about her intellectual respect for Jesus Christ. She's going to eat a bunch of sweets, uh, talk about love uh, and just make a bunch of funny faces. And I love her. Yeah, she's... She's definitely the standout character of that story, but there's also going to be plenty of people that are coming and going throughout that are like, oh, wow, these people are great. Oh, yeah. I still, I think every character has their, like, different moments. Um, uh, In that beginning chapter, like, going back to see uh, certain, like, backstory events from, like, the perspectives of uh, Shannon and... uh, I almost want to call them Shannon and Canon. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like... It's it's with the Japanese pronunciation, so it's Shannon and Kanon. Um, but to like see different, like see their perspectives. I think Shannon is also like a really standout character of Chapter Two. Like you just see a much diff, you see a lot of like different sides of her, and it's doing a lot to fill fill out like who she was as a person because she was like a she was sort of a one note character in the first chapter and she gets a lot of scenes to like shine and interact with other characters and like display different sides of her personality. Like there's one scene where she's like being, she's teasing Jessica really hard in like a really mean way. And I was like, wow, Shannon, I didn't know you had this in you. What did she say? (laughs) She says, so she's like telling Jessica, you know, she may have, she's been doing like a, my, my boyfriend in Canada thing with her friends 
and she says, uh, how about meekly confessing to everyone you don't have a boyfriend? To a pair of lovers, there's no sweeter honey than the face of a single person with an inferiority complex. And then there's a little star as punctuation. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, okay, Shannon. You can be really mean when you want to be. Yeah, I-, I think that's also the chapter where you, um, Canon goes undercover with the... Uh, <laughs> Um, Jessica to her school festival. Um, yeah, he does pretend to be her boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does pretend to be Jessica's boyfriend while wearing like a Sasuke Uchiha coat, <laughs> and everyone's like, "Wow, he's so hot! Look at this heartthrob!" And I'm like, "Really, really?" <laughs> but I guess this is the same universe where George wears that like U neck shirt. And that's like his hot date wear. So maybe fashion is just different. (laughs) And this is the 80s. I keep forgetting this is the 80s. Yeah, they... It it doesn't really come up that much, except when they're doing things like, hey, you know, those CRTs and things like that. (laughs) Uh, There's a bit, there's a throwaway line from Shannon that George... George told her about Sundares and said that they're they're a character archetype in anime that will be all the rage in about 10 years. (laughs) And then Jessica's like, damn, that's that's George for you. He's always got his hand. He's always got his finger on the cultural pulse of Japan. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh, right. I guess this is like 87, 84, somewhere in that range. Um, You don't think about it until it comes up. Totally. And I imagine their 80s looked a whole lot different than ours. So it's difficult to sometimes have that context of, oh, they're talking about something and it's hard to tell exactly what the cultural context might have been for them back then. Yeah, like in in a American media, I would look for like the American touchstones of what the 80s are. But I, I don't know what the touchstones for the 80s are in Japan. So I just I will miss it. Um, I, I, I think it's only in the eighties, uh, as like, uh, I don't want to deal with cell phones kind of thing. Uh, much, much easier to cut off contact with an outside world on an island when nobody has a cell phone. Yeah. A lot of the story seems to be around creating perfect little murder rooms mm-hmm. and, uh, How- presenting those as kind of like a challenge to battler to be like, okay, I- explain this. Um, on the other hand, though, imagine Battler with TikTok. <laughs> he would be unstoppable. Uh, just a bunch of... Just a bunch of cry-happy faces everywhere. <laughs> uh, I think that's another... Like, that is a strength of the of the uh, game, that, like, a lot of the characters are sketched out with the kind of detail that, like, yeah, I can imagine what Battler would be like on TikTok. It would be pretty funny, like... Everybody, uh, like most of the characters so far, have this sort of like depth and reality to them that it's it's very easy to like you know pick them up and be like, okay, if Badler was on TikTok and George liked anime, <laughs> how would that go? And as scared people get about the length of the series, that that's one of its that's that's one of the benefits of having a story that's this long. You get to spend. Very, you, you get to spend time up close with everyone involved, and mm-hmm. that helps. It, that helps them endear these characters to you in a way that a normal, 
well, a shorter murder mystery would have been more, aha, I can't wait to see what happens to these people now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I think I've tweet, I've tweeted that like Umineko is incredibly dedicated to just having the characters hang out. Like there's there's a the scene where like Canon goes undercover at um Jessica's school festival and then like all, everything that results from that takes about an hour. Like they're really dedicated. Totally. You will hear Canon's inner monologue as he thinks about how, like, the only things that matter to him are, like, his work and intellectual pursuits, so a cultural festival is beneath him. (laughs) He's, like, 14. Yeah, you get the sense that both him and Shannon had a pretty rough life though so oh, yeah. already <laughs> yeah you get you get count on at the cultural festival and then within like 30 minutes he is talking about like the the depths to which his like horrible life of exploitation and abuse has like led him to think of himself as not a person uh which is which is rough yeah a common refrain in that series is people referring to themselves as furniture or being called furniture because of their um, because of their lower place within this uh, caste system that's been set up. Mm-hmm. And it is a story about like exploitation and abuse in the end, I think. Um, that and like how belief in the supernatural is used to excuse like instances of, of abuse or exploitation. Um so I'm interested to see how all of that ties into Beatrice, like, um, walking around cackling and talking about drinking of, like, the infinite pool of human tears that she's going to construct, uh, which she does do. It's, like, almost quite literally a thing that she says she's going to do. Yeah, that's the other thing. Whenever Beatrice talks about things, she's very capable of making the figurative literal. <laughs> Yeah, so that's Umineko. Yeah, I, I've been replaying it at the same time, so I don't have a ton of other examples to get to, and at least one or two of the other examples I'd be getting into are actually things we're going to be talking about on our next episode, but uh, we can leave that for the end. Okay. But yeah, um, we're here to talk about uh, Kindred Spirits on the Roof, which is a... Visual novel by Liarsoft, originally released in 2012. It got a Steam release around 2016, which was unprecedented at the time because Steam has a very... At at the time, Steam had a very hard no policy on anything that was considered adult in terms of sexual content. And this game is basically a 18 plus adult visual novel. So there was there were news stories at the time from PC Gamer and all the other outlets about how Valve was putting this game through rigorous study and spent a long time greenlighting it. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, it's kind of had a place within Steam that's very unstable in terms of... There's been a few times over the past few years where Valve changed their mind about exactly how they want to handle adult games or visual novels in general. And this game has always been first on the cutting block in terms of them considering whether they want to like wipe a bunch of their library clean or not. Mm-hmm. I've seen like um, 
I've seen people who like make um, games with like sexual material in them talk about this that like um, the policy was always like that always has been very vague and like you said has been subject to change at certain times and like one of the big concerns with um, a game market that on PC is dominated by these big platforms is that there's no accountability for when or what with what criteria they decide, okay, we're, we're getting rid of all the explicit games um, off the service, or we're going to allow them back, but some and not others, you know? Um, and that's been a sort of common thing that pops up again and again in these past few years. Um, and it was part of why I was interested in doing this game, because I wanted to see, like, okay, what is the like, what is the actual material in this game that was, you know, such and has and continues to be like such a um, subject. I'm trying not to say discourse because that's what I say anytime there's like some sort of controversy now, which is a bad mm-hmm. habit of mine. But like, what you know, I wanted to see for myself. Like, what is this actual this thing that's in debate? Um, totally, and uh, I think both of us, for various reasons, took a look at this and. Where initially, well, at least my path through it was like, okay, I'm not seeing what's so, oh, oh, okay. And there was also a point where there's two characters that uh, we'll get to that I was like, okay, please don't do anything with them. And they're slowly creeping to do something with them. And there's a point where it seems like they're not going to, but then they do it anyway. And it's like, oh this sucks yeah my um enthusiasm about the game i think went on a um went on uh much like the works of ryu kishio 7 sort of a roller coaster as i started out low and then started to get into it okay got it and i'm like okay i can i can sort of vibe with with this game and what it's doing and then you hit a point where all the sex starts like showing up in the narrative and i just plummeted in terms of interest um like not not every problem i have with this game stems from the its decision to include like explicit sexual content and the way it portrays that sexual content but a lot of it a lot of it does yeah and to be clear um i played through lady killer in a bind i've i think i've played through at least one or two other adult games that were kind of like that. I think Later Killer in a Bind is pretty fantastic, aside from some issues they had to get through post-release. Um, and I'm not opposed to sexual content in video games. It, it was just that when we got to the sexual content in this one, it was like, I don't know why this is even here. I'm not super comfortable with it. And I'm just going to page through it until it stops. Yeah, I have similar feelings where like, I, I'm going to play Lady Killer in a bind in like a week or so once I clean up some more stuff on my plate, you know, I, um, I've even like, I've like even depicted like sexual content in my own creative work. So like, you, you can do it. Um, I think even like you can depict like, as this game does, despite the disclaimer, like sexual content between like teenagers. Um, but there are ways to do that in a manner that is like um tasteful, respectful and like not fucking weird. 
uh, that this game does not take steps to do, and I think, in fact, the decision to include sexual content in the game makes a ton of, makes, like, other decisions in the design of character and portrayal of characters, like, worse than they would be. Like, it takes certain things from questionable to outright objectionable because of, like, the, the depiction of sex in this game. Totally. <laughs> do we want to just, like, generally talk about the plot? Because we haven't done that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, so it stars a um, a second-year student named uh, Tumi Yuna, um, who's pretty shy. Res- well, not really shy, just kind of detached from most things. Uh, uh, her philosophy is like, I won't get involved with anyone, I won't get close to anyone, and nobody will be that close to me. Um because she has some, you know, she has some tragedy in her backstory that comes mm-hmm. out later. But yeah, she has like one friend um, at this girl's school. Um, she has one friend that she made just while being there because they sit next to each other in class. And like one childhood friend that also goes to that school now. Yeah. And she has a daily routine where she likes to eat her lunch up on the rooftop. And at some point during one of these lunches... uh she ends up spotting two students in bizarre-looking uniforms uh, standing in a place where it should be physically impossible to stand there. Mm-hmm. And uh, as the two, as as she and the two figures realize that they can see and hear and talk to each other, um, it comes out that they're both ghosts. One of which died eighty years ago, the other one died thirty years ago, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the two of them are what the game refer what what they what they want to be referred to as kindred spirits, which is basically the game's shorthand for um, a lesbian couple. Mm-hmm. And they have a the so the two ghosts, um, Sachi and Megumi, have a you know they want to like leave this plane and leave their regrets behind and in their minds and also in the game's mind which is another thing i have a problem with their relationship is not like um it's not it it's not completed or like completed in a sense of like it's not um not in the sense of over but more like as substantiated until they are able to have sex with each other um so what they want to do is like um, what they want to do is, um, basically, like, uh, play Cupid with a bunch of these, like, different girls around the school who they have observed have feelings for one another, get them together, and then figure out a way for the two ghosts to have sex so they can go to heaven, um, which, when you explain it, fucking sucks <laughs> like, yeah like the, the plan ultimately devolves into okay here's this girl that can basically go around and influence situations like not necessarily anything super direct because otherwise then otherwise it'd get weird but uh if they if she can kind of help these various relationships along there's a chance that they may fuck in the school. And if they do, we can watch and we can learn how to fuck. And then we can go to heaven. I think one of my like big frustrations with this game um, is that like when you describe the things that happened in this game, they sound really objectionable. And I think they are. But the game is actually quite good at portraying a lot of these things in a way that's like 
you can sort of excuse it in the moment. Like, I think there is a writing skill in this game to obfuscate, like, directly what is happening. Um, Like, I feel often while playing this game, I was able to forget that the point of Yuna getting these girls together is so that her ghost friends can, like, learn how to have sex. Um, Because... It's writ- it can be written in a way that's like charming um, and engaging to read. But then when I describe it to anyone else, somebody's like, that sounds awful. <laughs> and the thing is, the game's obfuscation is happening at the same time as Yuna's obfuscation is. Like, the only reason she's able to do this at all is she's not really thinking about what she's doing. And anytime <laughs> the ghosts are like, hey, so you want to hear what happened in this room? She just closes her ears and goes, no, no, shut up, go away. I don't even want to think about this. <laughs> yeah, you like the main character is also in denial as to like what the purpose and result of her actions are for long point for long points of this game. Um, and like, that's part of what makes it uh, frustrating to talk about is I, you know, like, I was able to get invested in some of the things happening when they are just like, when this game is just a relationship anthology, you know, I think it's okay. Uh, But like once couples start having sex and the framing around why this character is running around playing matchmaker is pretty bad. And there's also some couples that are pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah, like for the most part, I feel like a lot of these characters as couples are very endearing and it's like oh i'm glad they have each other in their lives and all that Mm -hmm. um like and that oh go ahead well i was going to say like i think the game is good at like picking a picking like broad tropes and doing thing and like implementing those tropes in a way that is still charming like um i think we both particularly enjoyed the couple that is like the rocker girl and the girl on the disciplinary committee like that is a pretty standard like you have one girl who's sort of like um loose friendly kind of wacky uh but also sort of a space cadet who like falls head over heels for the girl who is like prim and proper and kind of severe um and then what in the scenes where those characters are talking it's like um they're able to sort of like fill it with enough detail that is cute. Like, I like the way that the disciplinarian character, she has this whole um, philosophy of, like, time and the preciousness of time and the importance of different experiences that lead her to, like, be interested in becoming friends with the rocker girl because they are so different and she sees a value in, like, getting to know people whose experiences are very different, which means she's then open to, like, finding um what's valuable in the way that this other girl thinks about the world and comes to share her feelings for her and then they do a cute like thing where the rocker girl performs a song at the cultural festival and then they get on stage and kiss and if it ended right there i'd be like great beautiful little story but then they fuck at school and it's weird (laughs) yeah (laughs) a lot of there's a significant part of the back half of this game dedicated to characters finding ways to specifically have sex in a way that's the that the adults patrolling the campus will not find out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's... And so that's my experience of a lot of it, is, like, when it's good, it's, like, a when the game is, like, 
good. It's a good story that is then ruined by the game's insistence on, like, explicitly depicting sexual content um, in a way that's, like, voyeuristic, because I think the... It's not just the depiction, like, it's not just the decision to depict sex between these characters, it's the fact that it does it in explicit detail. You know, like, the game, you know, it, there's no fade to blacks, um, it describes basically what happens in pretty explicit detail, um, in a way that feels like for me, the person playing the game, um, and in a way that, and that makes those scenes particularly, like, unsatisfying and uncomfortable to read Mm -hmm. especially when especially when you're aware that the ghosts are pretty much watching every single time so whenever you're hanging out as the cgs are happening with these characters you kind of get the sensation that this is probably the same view that the ghosts are having and Mm -hmm. it sucks that they're doing this like their whole plan is like okay if we watch a bunch of people doing it it could be fine why does it like obviously nitpicking a plot so that it doesn't happen doesn't make much sense but the uh, theoretically this could all be resolved by yuna buying a fucking porno mag and giving it to the ghosts and be like there Mm -hmm. Uh, or like a sex education textbook you know like yeah um but it's specific but the story is specifically written in a way to like be voyeuristic Mm-hmm. And in some ways, Yuna is also getting something out of that, too, because it's through these actions that she's able to eventually realize that she has similar feelings for her childhood friend, Hina, and it, it gives her the eventual courage to accept Hina's feelings for her when Hina um, basically admits her love for her. Mm-hmm. And it's also through helping those people that she, like, works through her own past of, like, her issues about um, trying to help people in a way that in the past was, like, seen by past friends of hers as, like, overbearing and um, unwelcome. And when she found that out, it, like, you know, um, was very painful for her. And so that's why at the start of the game, she's not, like, um, you know, she's she is determined not to get involved with anyone and not specifically not to meddle with people's affairs is like something, a construct that she's really fixated on. And like her, Yuna's whole arc rings hollow because she had this problem of like, she's like, my problem is that I'm worried that I'm like inordinately meddling in other people's affairs. And I got over it by like playing Cupid to help some girls hook up. Uh, for, like, my friend's voyeuristic purposes. Which is like, ooh, that's not a positive character arc. But the game treats it like a positive character arc. And there are moments when they're not so much focused on the results of the Cupid stuff, where Yuna's being volunteered to for kitchen duty just because Hina is on the track team and is always talking up her food. Mm-hmm. And... That feels like it's almost a character arc that could happen separately from everything else, just because it's this interesting thing where Yuna's just figuring out over time, okay, there are people who do like having a person with my kind of personality around to take care of things, like someone who can just get things done. And it's fun to watch her basically get into her groove um, cooking for the track team and... 
like extending herself a few times to help other people out, but never to the point where she's overextending herself to the same degree that uh, two of the other couples, uh, um, Sena and Mick and Miki do. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it, it does come down to the fact that she, the only reason she, well, the main reason she agreed was that the ghost wanted someone there to continue things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I I think you're like you're correct in that there's like a good there's like the skeleton of a good game in this game that could be good if you would extract it from all of the like weird voyeuristic sex stuff you know like I think the core of the like the pitch of this story which is like a you know like uh, the main character becoming involved with these spirits who are in a relationship and trying to help them like move on um, which then causes her to sort of work through her own past and realize her feelings for, you know, her childhood friend and they get together. I think you can do that in a way that is that is good and intriguing. Like, I could, if you asked me to, like, restructure this story, I think I could just do it. Like, I have ideas to do it, but the, like, kernel of a good idea is, like, wrapped up in all of this, like, nasty, like, it's nasty. Um, it just feels like exploitative. Yeah. And the breaking point for me was seeing where the relationship ended up between the uh, teacher and the student. That one, uh, that one is the worst. Yeah. There's, um, there's this, um, there's this girl who's the only member of this one math club named, uh, Kiri Surugimi. Uh, I'm butchering the last name. Um, I think it's Surugi. Well, it's very long. Yeah. Um, point is, Kiri, um, Kiri is a the, the only member of this math club because uh, she has a crush on Sukuyo, um, who is a... Um, she's a 24-year-old teacher that ends up being shorter than most of the other students. And Kiri's whole thing is that she's just in love with um, cute things or cute people. So she ends up developing a crush on a teacher and... It is, like, students do, in real life, develop crushes on teachers, but it is the teacher's responsibility to be like, no, this isn't, we cannot do this. Mm-hmm. And at first, that is what the teacher does. <laughs> like, the first time feelings come out, um, the teacher is like, look, I think you just, I think you have a, I think you're misunderstood. Like, I think you're taking these signals that your brain is sending you and translating into something that isn't there. And you should maybe spend a few years growing up and things will sort itself out. But the game treats this as her saying it, it conflates it with her being like, Oh, it's just a phase in terms of um, gay relationships, which it's not really the same thing. So it kind of guilts the teacher into saying, "I." it, it makes the teacher cast in a bad light for saying no. Yeah, it, um, I looked up the, I looked up their names just to, so it's Kiri Surugimine and, um, Sukuyo Sono. So it, like, takes the teacher Sono and, um, casts her as, like, 
and a person who is unwilling to understand, like, the feelings of another person, because she initially says we can't be in a a relationship together. Because the game, I think, in general, has a big bias towards, like, when there is relationship conflict, you have to meet in the middle and understand each other. Um, And the worst thing you can do is, like, deny another person's feelings or say that they're wrong. Um, And there's another relationship in this game where I think that is, like, a misguided, um, like, way to think about the conflict that happens. Um, And it's... But it's, like, most creepy in this scene, in, in like, in the student-teacher relationship, where you know, the teacher is painted as, like, an unreasonable person for, like, denying, like, the romantic and, like, sexual come-ons of a student, which is very nasty. Um, yeah. The other thing that is, like, particularly objectionable in this relationship um, and is something that happens in the game is, like, the designs of the two characters. You mentioned that the teacher is, like, short um, and kind of, like, looks more like a student than a teacher but i think i think more than that i think the teacher is specific the teacher character is specifically designed to like look childlike in a way that is very creepy to me and they also design the student to look very tall and so you have this relationship which is a huge like power imbalance it's like it's ethically morally professionally wrong should not be happening and but the characters are the story excuses that power imbalance and pretends it's not there and the characters are designed to almost imply a power balance in the other direction by making like kiri the student the like more mature looking taller like larger character it, it physically and then making the teacher this like very small sort of like twin tails like childishly dressed character and it's just like it's very i keep being like it's nasty it's creepy but it it is i don't know why you design a character like this except with the like explicit goal of like sort of papering over the the power balance in this relationship totally and around the time when the arc is quote-unquote resolved by the teacher accepting um, the student's feelings and taking a step further and be like, okay, we're girlfriends now. Um, I at, I was talking about this game with someone on Twitter and they I kind of asked, hey, does this go anywhere? And they were like, oh, um, these characters eventually break it off because it doesn't work. What I came to understand only after I finished playing the game is that something that happens in the audio dramas that were released after this game there's no break point between, like, this is, they do straight up show the teacher and the student having sex. And it's at that point where I page through super quickly and I created a save afterward to be like, okay, if anyone, I, if, if either of the other, if any of you want to just get around this entirely, I've created a save point to just skip it. <laughs> Which I actually didn't end up using, um... Because it was this thing where it's like I felt like there was a critical, like, I wanted to, like, look at this as objectionable as it was. And, like, because I wanted to be able to talk about it in detail. And it, like, was as bad as I had thought. So I wish I had used the scene. Uh, I wish I had just used the save and spared myself of, like, going through it. Because it is, like, when the credits roll on this game, all of the couples are, like, they, nobody breaks up. 
they're all still in like relationships and it's treated as like a universal happy ending for everyone including the student and teacher who are dating which is i keep saying nasty it is nasty yeah like there you don't really need to find a bunch of other words to describe it mm-hmm. um it's just a really unpleasant thing that really shouldn't be in this game and it tips the scales from okay this is uncomfortable when the other scenes are happening to hey this kind of fucking sucks a whole lot Mm -hmm. um yeah uh i have other (laughs) i have other issues with the portrayal of sex but that like that is sort of the main one like those are sort of the main ones like the way sex is like specifically used like between this like student and teacher character and also like the fact that it exists and is like voyeuristic in the game but and so this criticism is comparatively small potatoes but i think the game also places like an like a unreasonable primacy on like couples having sex as in like the emotional like climax of a relationship you know like in this game, like the way that the plots are constructed, the way the characters talk about sex, like a couple is not a couple unless they have had sex and continue to have sex, you know, because with the two track team captains, like a big friction in their relationship is that like due to their circumstances, they haven't been able to have sex um, for like, you know, a few months. And that is treated as like... um that is treated with like this weight that it um and then when they are able to have sex it's like treated it's like this big like it smoothens out all of the stuff in their relationship um in a way that is i think just very wrong like yeah and like i i feel like the way that they handle some of that tension is okay just in terms of uh the fact that like, you understand why the more serious one, uh, Miyu Inamoto, has these rules just because they're like, hey, my family's super homophobic. I imagine yours aren't much more accepting. And we really want to be together. And if we want to be together, the best thing we can do is make sure that no one else has a clue about us so that we control the, we, we control the flow of information about this and... That will guarantee once we have enough, once we are in a stable position to live together, Mm -hmm. that everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. And Matsuri's whole thing is that uh, she is just, she just gets, she's just very horny all the time. And Mm -hmm. being denied this, feeling like she's being denied this thing that she wants to do with her partner, um gets her to the point where she's constantly getting in fights with uh, Miyu over very petty things. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's kind of treated initially as just something that they do occasionally and they get over it because they understand it's a bit silly and they understand they have conflicting personalities. But uh, at some point it boils over to the... It, at some point it boils over to the level where they're like, hey, I bet I can make Hina have a crush on me. No, Hina likes me more. Let's take her on a date together and see who gets chosen. Mm-hmm. Like, I... Yeah, they are... They're very... they're Like, the way that they both act towards Hina, who is, like, the main character's childhood friend, is, like, very weird. Another thing that, like, I think would be very creepy 
in like a real life situation that the game sort of doesn't really treat as a potential issue. You know, um, the fact that they are like these like third year girls who are like, um, that, that, that like sort of cajole a, like a, a younger girl who is like in a subordinate position on this track team into like going on dates with them as like part of their, like this fight that they're having in their relationship is treated as very like, haha, you know, very, very like, haha, isn't it funny? Um, and it doesn't come off as very funny to me considering like the, the way the rest of this game is. And I think especially like considering Hina, who she is as a character, she's another one of those characters who I think is portrayed as much more childlike, um, than she is, or like would be a, a person of that age would be. Um, and so it makes like both the fact that she, um, gets in a relationship with the main character Yuna and is also like a, like a object of like, um, like that, that both of her captains on the track team make like romantic overtures at her very weird. Yeah. And overall, I feel like those two couple, I mean, that specific couple is the more comfortable one just because they're older and they just seem to be in a semi good place where they've already figured that stuff out and you're not so much interfering in their lives. Um, it's, it's kind of funny every now and then where one of them will just come up to Yuna and make it a joke. That's clearly like it. If anyone who is, if anyone who's queer is playing it, they're like, oh, okay, this this person, this is totally a joke that an older um, queer couple would make. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's like, again, part of like what makes the game frustrating. I'm not immune to like the the fun aspect of like having this sort of like flirty, like older girl character who's constantly like, oh, wow, you're cooking so good. Would you marry me? Would you would you marry me right now? And like, um you know, the jokes of, like, her being, like, really flirty and being, like, um, um, like, basically, like, um, like, also sort of, like, over the top, like, she's asking girls to marry her all the time, and, like, that can, that can be kind of fun, but I also think she does cross a few boundaries in her, like, relationship with her girlfriend, um, and I think in that fight, they are sort of both treated as, like, mutually at fault, and maybe this is just my bias towards, like, the personality types involved but i think like in a situation like that where they've both they have both agreed on these like rules to their relationship about like public affection and like when like um trying to initiate sex is okay like when they've agreed on these sort of rules and then matsuri is like constantly trying to poke and prod and like consciously prod at those rules because when you see her point of view, there's several times where she is, like, explicitly making calculations of how far she can try to, like, push her girlfriend um, with public affection in and, like, making a calculation of, like, will this get her lastingly mad at me? Um, or can I, like, in her own words, she says, like, can I get away with this in a way that is really... Um, I think harmful to treat as like a funny personality type. Like I think she is more at fault in that relationship conflict, but the game treats it as a mutual conflict where like, you know, uh, Matsuri is like pushing the, yeah, she's pushing the rules a little bit, but also Miu is too uptight. And I think it's really not like that. I think Matsuri like pushes 
um, boundaries of like their relationship and also of consent in a way that is not wacky. Yeah. The, they're, they're also the breaking point for them when they start fighting over Hina or just get into a part where, or they just get into a state where they aren't willing to back down. Mm-hmm. Um, is maybe the most uncomfortable scene because it involves uh, Matsuri basically groping Miyu in the locker room when she doesn't want that at all. And that's all voiced, so you just keep hearing this person say, stop, no, I don't want this, no, until they just kind of just push off each other and start fighting over Hina. Mm-hmm. Like, it it does seem to show that that wasn't a good thing, but also it's seeing that in action and voiced. It's like, Oh God, this, this is, well, I think it, I, I don't think they really portray it as like the, you know, the sort of, um, like violation that it is because it isn't brought up again, you know, like it is sort of smoothened into like just Matsuri being like a more affectionate, a more physical person. Um, which is fine. Like you can have different tolerances in a relationship for like um, how much sex you're comfortable with having, but that's something that has to be talked about and explicitly worked out. And it isn't really, it's sort of just like um, it's sort of talked about as though it is just as though they're just sort of like having a disagreement about like how much sex they're comfortable with in the relationship when it is explicitly portrayed as Matsuri trying to like push boundaries that she knows Miyu has and does not want to cross but like thinks that it is worth trying to push them and push past them because she really wants to have sex with her girlfriend which is not good (laughs) it's just it it's really uncomfortable the way that it's like portrayed and then treated yeah there's also Sena and Miki. Um, basically, Sena um, is a freshman who falls in love with a senior Miki who is known throughout the school as just getting things done. She helps out various clubs and teachers and things like that, but kind of overexerts herself doing that. Um, there's a point where they find a unused uh, room and turn it into their secret hiding place of sorts. Um, initially just to hang out because uh, Sena and Miki both are like, well, Miki doesn't really, she doesn't really know what to do with a girl confessing her love to her. So she's like, well, I'm cool being friends with you and stuff like that. And I'm cool loving you as a friend and we can hang out together and stuff. And at one point, Sena goes too far and ends up kissing Miki as she's sleeping. And the game does treat that as like a a terrible thing to do and both of them are kind of aghast at it to the point where they separate for a while and have to work out their how they're feeling about that but the one place it stumbles in that regard is that uh it it doesn't really talk well miki develops guilt about that as well just in terms of her being like well i did go along with this and try to understand Maybe I'm not trying hard enough to understand her love and stuff like that, but uh, it it's one of those situations where it's like, it, it would have been nice if the story leaned harder into it being more of Sana's fault, because Sana did something bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's like the the least objectionable version of it in the game. I think like both of their feelings toward like, um, 
Kasena does demonstrate like a clear regret, you know, and she's like repeatedly apologizes. Um, but I think it's also understandable that like Miki, considering her personality type, she has such a huge like um, uh, she has such a huge like desire not to be thought of badly by people. Um, mm-hmm. and she, which she becomes more cognizant of over time, um, and then sort of like pushes back against, I can understand why she might feel like guilt about, you know, uh, that why she would feel guilty, even though she was the one who was kissed without her consent. Um, I think in a better story, it would be like fine ish, you know, I don't think it's particularly objectionable, but when you take it in pattern with, um, you know, the student-teacher relationship and the two track captains, I think it is, like, part of a... It becomes, like, another part of this sort of broader picture that the game is painting of its, like, objectionable views on, like, consent and boundaries. Um, Mm -hmm. And it becomes more unpleasant for the other relationship context in which it is placed. Yeah, in terms of the relationship that, um, well, I I think in terms of the relationship that I ended up gravitating to the most, just in terms of these people are the most fun to be around, um, I think I appreciated the whole um, thing between Umi, Ichiki, Sasa Futano, and basically their third friend, uh, Nena Miyama, who... It's basically the best character in the game just because she she does do do this whole thing of well th- their whole dynamic together is that uh Umi is very over the top and spontaneous and likes to um well basically is insistent on having this friend group stay together just because when she was a kid and moved away and came back to visit her friends the friend wasn't interested in her anymore. She was like, I need to make this friend group and keep them together forever. <laughs> and it's kind of fun to see the other two kind of brace against that a few times while still kind of being like, yeah, you're pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, I think they, they do have like a cute dynamic because it is Umi who is this very like, she's the Goku. Like she is, <laughs> she's like, she's very energetic. She's like, nothing, nothing gets her down. She's like, she tries her best to be really considerate. And she's sort of dragging along these two, like more introverted loner types who are sort of, you know, they, they make a fuss about being like dragged along into this friendship, but ultimately they do like appreciate that she keeps everybody together. And I think they do have like a charming, a charming dynamic. And I think they're, you know, their story of, like, Umi and, like, uh, Futano, like, starting a relationship, and then they, both of them, mostly Umi, but also a little bit from Futano, they start to worry about leaving Nena out of their friendship dynamic, so then they start to overcompensate, and uh, Nena's like, oh my god, can you guys just go on a date? For once, like we don't, we don't all have to be together. I think it that is very cute. I like the scene where Nana just like sits them down. She's like, "Oh my god, okay, it's okay. You can go on dates. You can spend time together. It's fine. I will be okay." Like, um, and uh, I think that's that's like one of the more charming parts of the game. Um, because they do have like a fun dynamic, even though I think Nana's like a little. A little too, like, anime tropey for me. I wouldn't call her my favorite character just because she is very cartoonish and, like, 
her like she's like oh i want i'm so tired i want to sleep all the time it's like a little uh it's just a little cartoonish for me in a way that's not quite to my tastes yeah for me i feel like it worked out just because it it allowed her cover to do various things or be or be more assertive when she needed to <laughs> like uh because of her being like that, everyone thinks that she's a bit um, dazed and not paying attention. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, the moments when the umbrella thing happens, um, you you try to you try to go out to take Nada somewhere else so that you can get the other two by themselves, and you find out Nada's already working on that. Like, <laughs> but and it Nada's whole thing between. Her friends is a lot less creepy than Yuna's because Nana's a longtime friend of theirs, and she sees these two people who seem like they might like each other, and she does what a good friend does and tries to get out of the way so the two of them can have time together. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an understandable and like entertaining interaction where Umi does sort of like see Nana trying to give them like privacy but interprets that as Nana feeling left out and so then decides to try to rope all the three of them into doing more things which makes Nana want to get away more I think that is a very like realistic and sort of like well thought out and cute character interaction for them to have um and I think it does I think it does you know it's it's probably like the I think it's probably like the best portrayed relationship in the game because they're very cute, that whole group. Yeah. Uh, in general, the closer things are to a friendship, um, the better I feel. I, I feel like the relationships between these characters when we're dealing with the friend groups tends to be a lot more, not just, well, not just in terms of less creepy, just in terms of I enjoy being around this more often. Like, um... Fujiano being the sleepy person who forgets everything, also being friends with Nana, and like it, it's interesting when Yuna is kind of going through her own thing and cuts off uh, Ano a little bit, and Nana picks up on that and has a frank chat with Yuna, being like, y- "You do know that the person that you see every day in your class, your, your best friend." really wants to talk to you so you should probably do something about that (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i i agree that like when it is just like these characters hanging out it's the game is at its best like you mentioned the that whole summer camp arc where yuna is cooking for the track team and i think that was like my that was the part of the game i could get into most because it was just this like cast of characters like hanging out in the same space and bouncing off each other and there was a little bit of the relationship stuff but in a way that was like fine you know like mostly fine you know like the broadcast um you know that's when you have the the broadcast trio sort of like um uh working on like um you know trying to balance you know their friendship versus two of them being in a relationship um it's when you have sort of like also the most cross character interaction um because you have all of these like sort of odd pairings of the different characters like um yuna hanging out with um Aiko, the the disciplinarian girl, like working on like student council work, um, and I think and like you get like fun character interactions. And I was like, for for a month in that game, I was like, oh, nice, you, we have a good game here. And then you have to go back through the month and like see all the couple scenes, and there's like multiple sex scenes, and I'm like, ugh, stop it. 
Yeah. It's a re- speaking of sex. Oh, go ahead. Well, just a, a very relative, like a relatively minor complaint. I think it's like sort of interesting the way that you have to like go through the month and you mostly go through it in Yuna's perspective. Um, and then you you go back through and like see different events from like the different couples perspective. And I think that's an okay idea that is like not executed. Well, I think you mostly, I think there's a little too much repetition of scenes. Totally. Like occasionally you'll have scenes where we meet back up with Yuna's perspective or she's in the scene because she was in that scene earlier and the exact things play out. You just have a different internal monologue going on. Mm Mm-hmm. I was like playing those scenes. I was buttoning through every bit of dialogue and only reading the parts that were like, you know, unlabeled because those were the point of view characters like thoughts. And that was the only new content in a lot of these scenes. And it wasn't really like, I didn't feel like it was worth having to go through the scene that I just saw, you know? Yeah. So in terms of the ultimate climax scene, um, that was, I kind of figured out they were going to do that as soon as the library scene happens. <laughs> and uh, basically the, the gist of these ghosts powers is that um, they can only be at buildings that were around when they were alive, it seems so that uh, e- each one of them has a building that they can't really get to. And at some point, um, yeah, ba- basically after they initially show that it's possible, um, because of, um, like, they, one of the ghosts ends up going, one of the ghosts, Megumi, ends up going to a place she usually couldn't go by holding on to Yuna's shoulders. Eventually, they start playing around with this sort of thing, trying to see what the limits and possibilities are. And for a lot of, for a lot of that back half, it's, it involves them basically getting Yuna to buy various bits of food that they, uh, either want to try or that they remember from their own high school years and uh they just get real close to yuna as she eats and basically deals with a funny situation where she has to like the ghosts don't have a stomach so they're like oh try this now try this now and you just like i'm one person i can't just keep eating all this stuff it'll hurt me (laughs) Mm. those scenes are those scenes are cute there's um there's one like um, CG that I thought was particularly cute, which is just like um, the the two ghosts have sort of like sandwiched Yuna and they're glommed on to like one shoulder of hers each. And she's just sort of sitting between them, uh, drinking a can of like fake Coke, um, <laughs> which I think is cute. But like you said, I knew where it was going from the second it was like, oh, we can possess somebody and share their physical sensations. And I was like, oh, don't. Don't do this. Yep, because uh, at at some point um, during their anniversary, um, they end up trying to have sex uh, on the rooftop and quickly realize, wait, uh, we can't actually physically interact with each other. This isn't going to work. And they quickly figure out, oh, we're going to need to get Yuna to... We're going to need Yuna to help hook us up with a possession situation. And um, it's initially the sort of thing where at least Sachi understands, hey, that's kind of a fucked up thing to ask someone. We should wait until she's figured out her own shit. And like, it's still not something that's good, but I guess we could maybe ask her then while Megumi is like, 
fuck that, we really need to do this now. And it gets to the point where eventually Megumi, while while Yuna is still trying to process the whole confession that uh, Hina gave to her, basically gets her into the classroom and is like, look, we need to do this. We need you. We need you to just figure out. Let's make your relationship even more complicated by being like, okay, you should say yes to this girl so we can specifically possess you, both you and the girl, so that we can fuck. And it's like, oh, this is not great. Especially when eventually Yuna does end up reciprocating Hina's feelings and apparently during that same conversation is like, so hey, could you help me out and maybe get possessed by this ghost so these two ghosts can have sex? Yeah, it is. Um, it's such a strange part of this whole game. And I really think it ends up like destroying the good, like what is good about Hina and Yuna's relationship. Like, I said earlier, I have some qualms about the the way that, like, Hina's, like, is portrayed in terms of her, like, level of maturity, um, because she is one of those characters who, like, is very short. She's drawn with more, like, childlike proportions, and she has a particular way of speaking and a personality type that can come off as very childish, as in it's, like, it's also sort of unclear. They talk about how she's sort of inscrutable in a way that it's unclear whether she fully understands certain situations. Like, um, and so there's, I have a lot of qualms with that, but there are also parts of their relationship that are like a cute, like, childhood friend romance. And then immediately it's like, okay, Hina confesses, there's an, agonizingly long almost literal month where Yuna thinks about whether she wants to do that uh, like or like whether she reciprocates Hina's feelings and then immediately it's like okay let's be girlfriends also ghosts exist also they're like would you be okay with them possessing us and having sex using our bodies which is just and it just destroys it like it's al- yeah. it's almost farcical, like the way that like it just destroys all of any like emotional like good feeling that could be had from like seeing the main character like you know realize her feelings and get together with somebody that she's really close with, and it just again it gets high it gets like literally that relationship gets hijacked for like the sake of another sex scene. Yeah, and it's not even something where they slowly get introduced to the ghosts. It just um on the day when they plan to do it, um the um y- Yuna brings up uh Hina along with uh um her friend Eno who apparently can sort of, kind of sort of see ghosts and has been aware that Yuna has at least had a ghost problem but not really understanding the nature of it. Mm-hmm. Um and it's like this whole, okay, hey, here's, here's the two people you can't see. Um, nice to meet you. Let's, we're going to do it tonight. And I, also the senior, the track team seniors get roped into it by giving them uh, a key to the, a specific part of the school. And they end up setting up the room for them with uh, various, like, sex things and it's like oh this the degree to which 
it, the, the degree to which everyone is acting around this too is kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the yeah, it it's just it's such an uncomfortable like whole setup. Like the fact that Hina cannot even see these ghosts until like right before she is possessed by them. Um, which is literally in the narration, there's a point where Yuna wonders if she really understands what she's agreed to, which is just like incredibly skeevy. Um, and I, I, it's like, again, one of those things, I don't know why you write, why you construct and write a scene like this, unless you are trying to be like weird and exploitative. Um, and it's just, it's just uncomfortable, that whole thing. Um. And then it's the fact that, like, it's what the ghosts, the two ghost characters, like, Ark hinges on the fact that they're able to, like, have sex with each other by using, like, other people's bodies. And then they're able to go to heaven off on that. And it's just very, it's uncomfortable. And it's weird. And it's, like, bad to play and read. Totally. And, uh... It, it doesn't really feel like the ghost characters are as fleshed out as they could be either. Like, they do have a bit of backstory to them. Um, Sachi has this thing where, essentially, she's been trying to act cool for, Mago- for Megumi just because she's was kind of an awkward, mousy person in real life and didn't take much control over situations herself. But uh, it's pointed out to her, oh, since this is the way you've been acting with around us this whole time... And it's something you just do now. It's that is you. And in any other story, that would be like interesting character development and stuff like that. And uh Megumi's is the something I've seen actually in another game we've covered for this podcast, uh Narcissu, where her whole thing is that she's a dramatically um tragic figure who is basically destined for death. Um in early years and she ends up her desire to see um to see sachi more like she only caught glimpses of sachi before ends up binding her soul to the school when she dies and there's some interesting stuff there but it doesn't feel as fleshed out as anyone else and it also still doesn't explain much about how the two of them come to be in such a manipulative to construct such a manipulative situation. Yeah, the the ghosts, I think, are definitely some of the weakest characters um, in a way that's very strange. Like, Sachi has so much guilt about, like, essentially, like, having her person, like, her personality changing over the course of 80 years is the thing she feels super guilty about and not like the fact that she was an indirect cause in her girlfriend's death like it's said that one the one of the re- like the reason that Megumi like caught the you know it it said i think it's basically said that she had like a weak immune system and so she was always sick um and like she ends up catching the bout of sickness that eventually kills her because she is like pushing herself more than she would to go to school every day to like try and catch glimpses of this ghost that she's seen on the school roof so sachi is like an indirect cause in megumi's death and megumi kind of like dies to be with her um, and nobody particularly minds that in a way that feels very strange to me. 
Yeah, and you could argue that the span of time they've been like this might have been a situation where it's like, oh, they smoothed it over a little, but when you hear them talk about um when you hear them talk about each other, it sounds like during their 30-year relationship that never came up. Like there was never a point where like in 30 years of being in a relationship that Sati was like, hey, I used to be a little bit different or hey, I'm sorry that this happened to you. Yeah, they make it pretty clear that, like, they don't, like, the way their relationship is, like, framed in the story is, like, Sachi dies, and then 50 years later, Megumi dies and confesses her love for her, and then they're like, okay, we're girlfriends now, and then it just smash cuts to 30 years later when Yuna shows up on the scene. And, like, they haven't, despite being, like, in a... Despite existing in this state where they can't interact with anyone but each other, they don't seem to have talked or, like, understood each other very well. Um, And they don't seem to, like, know each other or have, like, a real relationship beyond it just saying, like, oh, yeah, it exists. Like, they're girlfriends, but, like, they don't really know anything about each other. Um... And Megumi's weirdly suspicious of Yuna despite being in a thirty year despite being in a thirty year relationship with this other person. You you think that after thirty years at some point you would get used to your partner just hanging around around someone for like ten minutes or an hour or whatever, without being like, Oh, you're trying to get my girlfriend. Yeah, I could see like I could see a basis for her being suspicious, but she's not suspicious in the way that would make sense, given her backstory. Like, she's suspicious in a very childish, like, oh, don't steal my girlfriend by talking to her too much way. Whereas, like, in, and not like, oh my god, it's only been me and her for, like, 30 years, and now we, she can meet this other, now she can talk to this other person. Like, what if I don't measure up? You know, she has a very, like, childlike sense of jealousy in a way that feels incongruous with what this character is supposed to be or like what what we're or not what she's supposed to be but more like what her told what we're told are the facts of her life like you you've been dead for 30 years like something has had to have happened yeah totally in your life but she seems to she's exactly the same as like when when she died and I think it, and basically so is Sachi, and I think it makes them, like, really weak characters when they should be, like, the focal characters of the story. And I think it also feeds into, like, the primacy that this game places on sex, that, like, you know, they they keep saying, like, oh, we need to, to get to heaven, we need to become one, and that is accomplished through them having sex and not through them, like, coming to an emotional understanding of each other. Like they spent thirty, they spent thirty years together, and their relationship didn't deepen to the point where they could go to heaven. But then they have sex one time, and all of a sudden, there's a literal pillar of light, like coming to take them to the next life. And it's, it's like metaphysically strange. <laughs> yeah, like the other characters aren't even given time to process this. They're just like, oh, okay, I guess. I guess we have to go outside now and bid these ghosts farewell. <laughs> and it, it does seem like it rightfully, the whole situation kind of 
um, fucks up Yuna as she's going home like, all the, my life wasn't like this and then they just happened and now they're gone and it's like, what the hell, did, what the hell am I anymore? <laughs> just in terms of, oh, I spent my entire... I spent my entire second year of school setting up these relationships and helping these ghosts fuck, and now the ghosts are gone, and it's like, what was I even doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's, the way they sort of resolve that is it's like, oh, well, I have my girlfriend now. And I'm like, I don't know about this one, Chief. Your, re- yeah. your relationship, the, the relationship just is very weird. Yeah, and then the game's like, after the credits... Oh yeah, don't worry, we created a sex scene with these two as well. Just in case you didn't... Just in case you were missing that because the they ghosts were taking control of these characters before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a good game. I would say. Um, I think that, that, you know, there's a lot of very objectionable parts and the good parts are dragged down by the objectionable parts. Um... And which is a shame because I I think it has enough good parts that I would I would have enjoyed a version of this game that I could like and I want that version to exist but it just doesn't exist. Yeah, for like the first five hours of this game, I was super positive on it just because I liked all the characters and the way they were interacting and I was like, oh, this is kind of a fun light thing. And at some point, it became not that, and I was like. What did I even get myself into here? I think my, yeah, my arc with it was like, like I said, I started out low and then I started to have a better opinion of it. But then when the bad stuff really started to hit, I started to think about all of the, like, uh, like all of the uncomfortable and problematic parts of the, of the entire premise of the game that had been smoothed over by like, you know, like engaging like interaction between characters and then it just totally like the bottom fell out of it and all i had left was the uncomfortable parts and i was like man what was this Mm -hmm. and i recognize its importance in like getting adult games onto steam and making that happen and uh, i don't know the exact order of release but I'm pretty sure this and Lady Killer in a Bind go hand in hand with uh, creating an environment on Steam where more adult games can flourish and stuff like that. And like Lady Killer in a Bind, I like quite a bit. And this one, it was like, well, I like the first half of it. And then it just kind of nosedived. But uh, I, I appreciate the, I appreciate its place within Steam's history in terms of opening a door for games with with sexual content being allowed on like basically at this point the only pc store that generates a significant amount of money Mm -hmm. i think it is a it's a bit of a shame that like this was like the standard bearer for like how you could portray sex in games because i think it is very badly portrayed um but i guess i'm glad it didn't like reflect on the entire you know the entire idea of sexual content in games, but geez. Yeah, it's definitely wish that there was something more upfront and center that uh, had a similar sort of cultural impact in terms of 
adult games being on Steam. <laughs> and it's definitely something that's popped up, like, not necessarily what's in this game, but the whole thing of sometimes the people who are the most vocal when it comes to adult games can also be kind of obnoxious or bad. Like, um, when... During one of the moments when this game was about to be taken off along with the other um along with the other visual novels um the ma- outlets decided to run with a quote from the honey pop dev who used the words anime waifu holocaust I do remember and, that Yeah at, at at the time it was incredibly frustrating because it was like this is a serious thing that has implications for the kind of games that can or cannot be made on Steam, and running with this person just makes the whole thing look embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the sort of fight to be able to, like, the fight to be able to depict, like, you know, like, sexual scenes, like, like taboo content in art always has this sort of difficult... Um, double edge where the most visible uh instances of those depictions are are often like the ones that are the most like shocking or um like exploitative or um uh sometimes not even well done because that like that that's the kind of sex that sells yeah and it's an it's an unfortunate place to be in where you're your hopes of having content that is better rests on the content that is worse and hoping that it doesn't rock the boat too much so that it all gets thrown out. And that that's just a bad place to be in terms of game distribution, but that's I feel like that's just the nature also of living in a capitalist... <laughs> not to get all... Like, it, it was my initial point, but yeah... Capitalism fucks things over. <laughs> yeah, the fact that the the market has that there is, you know, it's a, um, I I'll do you one farther, right? Like this is what Lenin talks about the way that the the PC, you know, uh, I think Lenin would look at the PC games market being basically like a, you know, uh, competing monopolies, like competing platforms that are just controlled by these huge game companies, and just be like, that's how it is, like. Do you wanna do you wanna go into um do you wanna go into like Steam's domain? Do you wanna go into the Epic Store's domain, or are you like messing around with whatever little market share Origin has? Um, because those are your options for selling games on the PC, and there really aren't. Or like Itch is also another option, but like does not have Itch does not even have like does not have even half the reach that any of these other platforms do. Yeah, it's to the point where even if someone is on multiple platforms, I've seen several indie creators be like, hey, we are selling on itch and we do appreciate that we get more of a cut here, but we would also prefer it if you bought it directly on Steam or we're going to give you a Steam key so that you can leave a review on Steam Mm -hmm. so that because that's the best way of getting our game noticed or sold at all. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of that too, of like, you know, developers, like, either implicitly or explicitly weighing, like, um, there is a platform that it is better for the game to sell on, you know, by unit, and then there is a platform that is better for the game to sell on, like, in total. 
just because of the market share. Yeah. Hmm. Do you have anything else about this game that you'd like to discuss? I'm racking my brain to try and think of anything that we might have looked over, but um, only thing I that's coming to mind right now is there are extra scenes that unlock after you beat the game. I didn't take a look at them because at that point I was already done. No, I was too tired. I, I looked back at them and I'm like, I'm not... I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't in the mood for more of this game because it was not a good experience. And so the thought of, like, going even farther back into the timeline to look at other different scenes, I was just like, I, I don't want to do this. And the game had a hint that there was, like, a way to unlock more extra scenes, and I was like, no, man, I'm done. <laughs> Can't do this anymore. Yeah. The way to unlock more extra scenes is to go back through all of the story scenes and fi and try and remember which one of them had multiple choice entries. And... Like, the game overall is somewhat good at marking your place, just in terms of, okay, here are the side stories we're going to put in next next to them when you can go to the continuation of that one. But, uh, yeah, overall, just expecting people to go back into each scene and try and find where the multiple choice stuff was that's kind of silly yeah i think if you're gonna if you're gonna put that in your game like that's a bold move you have to make it you have to really make a story where i am so like i really want to go back um if umineko did that i might go mess around in previous scenes but i'm not doing that for kindred spirits man you missed it you messed it up yeah, if Umineko did it, it would take twice as long to complete the game. <laughs> <laughs> if Umineko did it, I think you could put a lot of the hanging out scenes into those extra scenes, and it might make a mainline playthrough of Umineko faster. Uh, there's a funny... I looked up how long that game took at one point, and like on, you know, on the like how long to beat website, it's like main path, or like main path plus extras, and I'm like, what do you mean? There are no choices in this game. <laughs> I wonder if whoever calculated that counted the tea room and all that stuff as extras, even though it is absolutely not an extra. Yeah. I think it's just a game that, that breaks how we, how, you know, a website like that talks about game time. Yeah. Especially if you're playing with the voices on. Uh, do we have um, any emails about the game? We have two emails. Yeah. Um, let me see. The first one is sent in by Ira, who basically asked, um, what's it like to play Kindred Spirits compared to other games like it? Um, their comparison was Had a Full Boyfriend. Um, like, at least on my end, uh, this, this one is a lot more, it's, it's closer to what people call Umineko, which is kinetic in terms of just, it has a story to tell and you get to the beginning and the end of it. There are choices, but they don't really matter aside from getting extra scenes, and uh, they don't really affect what happens within the main story. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of in terms of other adult games I played, as I mentioned, I played Lady Killer in a Bind, and I think Lady Killer in a Bind is much much better, both in terms of. Uh, telling a story that you can be comfortable with and uh, also just making good sex scenes. Like, it has fantastic sex scenes. <laughs> yeah, I think I've basically said everything I would say, like comparing playing Kindred Spirits to other, like, 
other visual novels. Um, I don't know if I have anything more to add on that point. Yeah. Um, and the second email we came in, uh, the, the second email that came in, uh, came from fellow Scanline Media person and, uh, my partner, uh, Kyrie Page. And, uh, she asked, sometimes in this game, sex scenes seem to come out of nowhere. While they are intimate, I can't help but feel like the scenes themselves are more in service to the player rather than the story the game is trying to tell. When do you think the best times to deploy a sex scene are? Yeah, I definitely agree with that assessment that, like, they they are, like, the scenes are sort of, like, voyeuristic. Um, I, my, like, the, my, like, the way that I think about, like, depicting sex, I think the way to make it feel not exploitative is, like, to ground it in, like, its meaning for the characters that are participating in it. Um, and I think that's one of the problems of Kindred Spirits, is that it's, like, it's very concerned with the act of sex, but it's not really concerned with what sex means to anybody who's involved, you know? Like, it doesn't... The fact that these characters have sex doesn't tell us anything about their characters, um... And that's why I think we said a few times that, like, you could just take all of these scenes out and have a better game. Um, because it is just superfluous content that's there for the sake of the viewer. I I agree with that. I Games that handle this sort of thing well make it in, integral to the characters, just in terms of them having a relationship that grows and in terms of Oh, or just in terms of them finding out new things about each other and connecting in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. Like, seeing people form lasting connections or just coming to full, coming to grips with how much they like this other person through how caring they are for each other. I feel like that's one of the best parts about uh, sex scenes in media in general. Mm-hmm. I also want to be clear that, like, you can also have perfectly fine sex scenes that are just there for the sake of the viewer, but, like, it's specifically in Kindred Spirits, the fact that these are all, like, teenage... Most of... Like, they're all teenage characters except for the teacher who is having sex with one of her students. So it's, like, what enjoyment? Like, there should be no enjoyment that I, as a grown adult playing this game, should get from any of these scenes. Like, I don't want to see these and enjoy them like the only way that they would feel justified in the story is if they made sense for the character like if they had consequences for the characters involved but they don't they're just here for my presumed enjoyment of which there is none you know totally yeah i i pretty much agree with everything you said there like i was thinking about um uh as like do you remember um, Caracano, which we watched, his and her circumstances? Like the first, we I, we watched like the first three episodes of that on Oops All Anime, I think. Yeah, yeah, the the one that was made by the same studio as uh, Evangelion. Yeah, and there is, I was thinking about that show again because there is an episode like later on in the series in which the main couple has sex. Um, and I think that is a much better portrayal of the topic, even though, you know, with both characters being teenagers, because it is not explicit, and the entire episode is centered on, like, what they're, you know, whether they are going to, whether the two characters are going to decide to have sex, and what that means to them, and for their relationship. 
Um, and it, it ties it into, you know, the themes, the themes of the show where both of these characters have decided to like, um, you know, live their lives without caring what other people think and like trying to be true to themselves and how, you know, whether them deciding to have sex with each other would like affect, you know, their sense of self. Um, and it, it's in that whole episode is grounded in like what that act means for those characters and it is not actually about the act itself and that's what makes it like a lot a much better portrayal yeah i i need to go back and watch the rest of that show it was it was a pretty good show i i was thinking about it recently it's one of my favorites i think it's pretty good but just as just as an example of like i think you can even like portray like you know, like a, a sexual relationship between teenagers in media in a way that feels like not exploitative. I, I think it is not only the fact that this stuff exists in kindred spirits, it is the way it is handled that makes it objectionable. Totally. Um, I Yeah, I think those are the only two questions we got. Um, if you have questions about what we're going to be covering next or this game or anything else we've done, really, you can send them to podcast at abnormalmapping.com. And uh, we always appreciate having something to read out on here and discuss. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of the next thing we're doing, um, we're doing something a little bit different this time. Uh, Well, this is something we've done. We we did a while ago, but uh, we haven't, uh, it's been a while since we've done one of these. We're, we're basically going to take a bunch of short games again and give them a grab bag treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, from the, uh, you may have heard there is a, uh, there is a big, there's a big bundle of games. Uh, uh, we're taking them from the uh, itch bundle for racial justice, playing three games from there. Did you want to say them? I didn't want to actually step on your toes announcing these. Uh- Sure thing. Um, we're going to be going through Last Day of Spring, Wide Ocean Big Jacket, and A Mortician's Tale. Um, yeah, they they run a pretty wide range of topics, um, like from a summer vacation to like working within a morgue. But uh, it's well, is that? A- is that considered a morgue? I don't know the exact terms, but yeah. <laughs> well, it's a it's not a morgue. It's a funeral. It's a funeral home, um, and the main character is a mortician. Yeah, yeah, funeral home. That's it. And um, yeah, each one of them is not very long at all. So, like, if you're a listener, and there's a pretty good chance that you may or may not have picked up that bundle. So, if you have, you have a Hopefully this podcast will be a easy excuse for you to check out some of these games. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that, uh, that had reminded me. Um, we also on this episode wanted to shout out a, another itch bundle that's currently going, which is the visual novel romance collection for black trans lives, which launched, I think yesterday. Um, it is like 10, visual novels um i think they all have uh i think they all are like queer visual novels basically um they're either exclusively or like contain options for queer romances um and i you know like we talked about lady killer in the bind 
in a bind which is on there we know the devil is on there heaven will be mine is on there um so like some like uh i think uh some things you would uh, like i guess like big big names in this space and also a bunch of other stuff that looked interesting to me so i think if you are a listener of this podcast i think it is likely that you will find something in there that you like um and an opportunity to give money to a good cause which is the uh okra project uh a charity like a sort of combined like mental health charity and like food security charity for black trans lives yeah, and um, like even if this, even if it takes like a week for this podcast to be uploaded, um, it's this uh, bundle is supposed to go run for a few weeks. So by the time you hear this, it should still be mm-hmm. ongoing. Yeah, nineteen days as of this recording. So you, there is a lot of time for sure. Uh I think that's going to do it for us. Uh, unless you had any final thoughts on any- on anything. Nope. Okay. So, yeah. Um, we'll see you next week for... Well, we'll see you next month, uh, <laughs> I was like, ideally. I was like, whoa there. <laughs> whoa. We'll see you next... <laughs> uh, we'll see you next month for the last day of spring. Wide Ocean, Big Jacket, and A Mortician's Tale. And um, Six should be back by then. <laughs> Anyway, have a good one. Bye, everyone.